Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, today we'll cover chapters one and two, or at least a couple of issues from chapter one and two, and I think the solving of the issue of faith and Paul begins the book by talking about faith is to get straight that that's already a universal term in that it entails the faith of Christ and that our participation in the faith of Christ is not simply making Christ an object. And then we, we get the picture that there's only one kind of salvation in Paul's depiction. There's not multiple kinds. This uh, The answer to the one question, what is faith, will answer the other question, who are the law-keeping Gentiles? There's only one answer, and that's uh, clear here, and then the rest of uh, Paul's use, if we parallel it with other passages. Of course, the great work of Richard Hayes on the faith of Christ that he's uh, spent his career tracing this, that it's not that we have faith in Christ, that Christ is an object, but the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ is one that we can join in. And when we become Christians, then we participate in his faith. He's modeled for us the faith, and we, we journey as he's journeyed. And this makes sense out of the picture of Abraham, that it's not that, you know, that Abraham in some way had some uh, faith in the objective. Abraham's journey, his faithfulness in his journey, was not simply a cognitive thing that he did in his head. Abraham is the prototype of human faith. That is, the faith of Abraham is a journey. It's uh, one that we can imitate, we can join in. And so just that illustration, it's a parallel in form and content. And so this this picture of faithfulness, and the faithfulness in particular given to us in Christ, but then first uh, enacted or at least modeled in Abraham, gives a sense to the, the idea of that Christ was faithful unto death, and so too that's what faithfulness will be, will be to take up the cross. And so this, Hay says this expresses the most natural translation in the Greek, and in this it makes God, rather than God and Christ, this consistent object of faith for Paul. And this will become clear when we get to chapter 8, that we are in the position of Christ, and when we cry out, Abba, Father, that he's the one who has that relationship which he shares with us. It gives coherence as a reference to Christ's faith or faithfulness, that he's faithful unto death, the overall picture of you know, Paul's experience in theology, that it's not anthropocentric, it's not our faith that is key, that is our intensity of belief, if we can just conjure this thing up. But it's theocentric and Christocentric, it's Christ's faith, it's our participation in that. This gets at the holistic nature also of faith, that it's not just a cognitive capacity, but it's joining in an, an identity with Christ. And it grounds Paul's emphasis on the inseparability of faith and love, faithful and loving act of Christ on the cross, or even that his journey of, uh, throughout his life was one of faithfulness. You're faithful in a covenant relationship. That's definitive of love. And so once you get this straight, we can talk about then there's two Christianities almost, that this is again a part of this whole perspective that faith in Christ uh, that is, that this gets us back into the whole contractual understanding of uh, that we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, and the sinner is enabled to stand before God if he has an intensity of belief, a strong belief in who Christ is, 
that we can have a righteousness imputed to us. Why that should be is unclear. That is that there's no coherence there. They're not organically connected. The faithfulness of Christ is organically connected to both the problem, if we understand it, unfaith, orientation to death, that is death denial, is our problem. Faithfulness is an entry into a death-accepting lifestyle in which we would lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for others. It brings it this organic structure back, and then all of the terms are going to make sense, that we, we participate in his work, and this is holistic. It's literally, it's an embodied thing that there's no part of who we are that is left out of this faithfulness. It's spread over the range of human life. It's active. We Certainly it involves belief. It involves active participation, but it's also the, the thing that we rest in. It's a, an attitude that we have. It, just as Christ is who he is, it's bodily, it's inner, outer, it's holistic, it's universal in the sense it includes all of who we are, and it's universal in that it is inclusive of all social, political. That is, the, the human predicament is one that is unfaith. You know, think of the Tower of Babel or think of the Jews. They're a socio-political entity that is demonstrative of unfaith, and what is being established in Christ is this holistic, universal faithfulness. This is the, the point of the death of Christ, that he's defeating, you know, what is the, the power of the, the, the principalities and powers exercise that Christ is challenging in his life. It's the power of death or a fear of death, as Paul will describe it, the writer of Hebrews describe it. And so the one who is faithful in this, you know, think of the trial of Jesus, that they literally hold, the Pilate holds his life and death in his hands, apparently. And that that fear, that, uh, that that is the fear that holds everyone in bondage. The nations exercise it to hold people in bondage, but they themselves are under that bondage. And so when Christ challenges the socio-political powers, it's a picture of the structure of human society, but it's also a picture of the human psyche, the psychological problem. It's existing at both things, and the way it's overcome, the way we're cured of our fear of uh, death, our neuroses, of our unspiritual life is through the enactment of the faithfulness that the Holy Spirit enables us to carry out. And the Spirit is very much, of course, this is Paul's picture even in chapter 2, where people are talking about, oh, this class of Gentiles that must be saved. Well, look at the end of the chapter. He ties that directly into the, their having the Spirit. And so the way that Karl Barth has put this, the faithfulness of God is established when we meet the Christ in Jesus. The faithfulness of, of God in Christ establishes human faith. The point here, again, we've made a departure from a contractual understanding in which it's assumed that we have some sort of cognitive ability to arrive at faith. Well, the whole point of that this faithfulness is not something we can conjure up, but by participating in Christ, we have faithfulness. And so if we, again, recognize the problem, the problem is an orientation to death because of the law and the law, you know, what could serve in the place of the law? Well, it could be idolatry. The sin problem is not simply immorality, breaking a law, or it, nor is it simply idolatry. You know, if it were simply idolatry, why do the Jews still have a problem? In fact, the Jews, the Pharisees, in some sense, are very ethical. Paul says that in every way. I, 
I kept the law perfectly. He doesn't see himself, as a Pharisee at least, as having an ethical problem. And so even to imagine that this is part of the argument here, he didn't realize, he didn't, even the, his own scriptures, in other words, he's reading the, the Old Testament again in a new way. He puts together these quotes, he's reading even chapter 1, I assume that he's reading from the early chapters of Genesis, and he's realizing something that he could not have realized as a non-Christian Pharisee, and that is this, this orientation to death. So the faith of Christ, it's a, it's a story about God's faithfulness. And so our faith that we have is a participation in God's work through Christ. And the Spirit then is, in, in this sense, it's not a localized form. It's not simply cognitive, but it is spread over our entire life. It's active. It's the way we live. It's ethical. It has to do with our entire bodily, inner and outer, personal and social. That is, this faithfulness is certainly not an interior thing. You know, this gets into the whole imputed righteousness, but also into that in some way we don't do anything at all. Well, that kind of misses the point. In this sense, well, yes, we participate in this, but this becomes everything that we are. And so justification or rectification or things being made right is one that takes place through the death and resurrection of this faithful one, because the way in which he's faithful is an overcoming of the powers that have us in their bondage, the bondage to sin and death, that his faithfulness undoes our unfaithfulness, because we're split against ourselves in Paul's picture. So that reconciliation is a thing that happens between us and God within ourselves, with other people, but it also then, it, the whole picture that you get is one of a, a person that now has integrity within themselves. That is, they cohere. So the faithfulness of God in Christ establishes human faith, but rightly understood, this human faithfulness is an entirely different kind of person. It's not just that they now have a, a new belief system or a new cognitive ability. It is an entirely different human sort of identity. This fits, you know, with what's happening with Paul. We can misread, then this is what happens in contractual theory and justification theory. It's thought that in 10.2 that what Paul has come to realize is that he lacked faith and he depended on works and that that was the shift or the change that he came about. This is N.T. Wright. He says, no, that, that what Paul came to realize is that Christ is the messianic agent of God the faithful one raised from the dead. The righteousness that comes from God is disclosed in him. And so it's not just, oh, we have this alternative to works now and in belief. So it's not that Paul discovers an inner disposition of faith in Galatians 2, as opposed to striving to please God. What he discovers, what he comes to, is Christ himself. In all of this, faithfulness versus lying, we've done a lot of this already in the introductory lecture, that if we remember the identification of sin with a lie, it's already there in chapter 1, it's there in chapter 3, and chapter 7. It's the depiction of, Paul ties it into idolatry. And if we remember that idolatry, you know, it doesn't appear in the Gospels, but it will appear in the speech of Stephen. But actually, Jesus is accusing them of the same thing. And this is really the picture in Romans 1, the lie that is taken up. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. The Jews have not escaped 
the thing that underlies the idolatry. And so the sin problem is not simply immorality. It's not really even simply idolatry. If that were the case, you would think, well, the Jews got rid of idolatry and they're, they're a moral people for the most part. And so doesn't that solve the problem? Well, there's a deeper problem. The question, would Paul, and this is when we come to Romans chapter 7, would Paul have realized this deeper problem as a non-Christian Pharisee? I don't think he would have. That to locate the sin problem, as it exists for both Jew and Gentile, and he's spelling it out here in chapters 1 to 4, he's going to continually tie it back to a universal predicament, and that's why he goes back to Genesis 3. And in this, then it doesn't, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile that... The Jew is also counted with Adam, and it's the Adam in the Jews that is the problem. And so everybody shares in the same predicament that faithfulness will address. And so the problem is much deeper. And so to imagine that Paul is in some way dealing with an understanding that a Jew would have had, I don't think a Jew, even Paul, would claim that he understood. It's only from being a Christian and looking back upon his life as a Pharisee, that he's going to understand the extent of the problem, because the, the problem is itself deception. In other words, he's deceived, and it's only from the Christian understanding that he understands how this deception was working on him. That's the point here. That's the language we've been through, the language of, you know, that at a micro and meta-narrative level, I think that's what's happening. That sin is not something that we simply inherit. It's not simply breaking a law code. It's not something organic. It's not simply out there. But we could give, say that sin, it encaptures and includes everybody. It's the interpretive structure that constitutes people outside of Christ. And that's the case that Paul is making. The case, you know, the, the issue of idolatry is very interesting because Paul is going to bring that back in. Idolatry, I think, is illustrative of this, that the Jews are still suffering from the same sense of desire or covetousness that is linked with idolatry. So once you say this universal problem, then to imagine, oh, there's some group of Gentiles somewhere, that the Gentiles in question in Romans 2.25 to 29, that don't have this problem. How does that even enter into the argument once you understand the global universal sweep of Paul's argument? And this is the, you know, Charles Cranfield, Ernst Caseman. Caseman may be the, these are the two of the outstanding scholars of the previous generation, and N.T. Wright then quotes them in agreement. There's a little question here that Paul is speaking of Christian Gentiles, when he's describing in chapter 2 who these Gentiles are who have a righteousness that is not through the law. Well, that's clear that he's already said this, and he says it in other places, that we are delivered from the law, that being dead, this is chapter 7, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's sort of the picture at the end of chapter 2. The Judean is one of secret and circumcision of the heart, in spirit, not letter, whose praise is not from human beings, but from God. Same language, same book, just a few chapters removed. And so the letter-spirit contrast, it's there in both of these chapters, and uh, it's clear that this is the Gentile here is a 
Christian. He uses similar language in 2 Corinthians that the, the spirit gives life, the letter kills. And the word letter here, of course, it just could be scripture. He's certainly referring to the, to the Jews in uh, 2 Corinthians. And in Philippians, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Uh, I don't think there's such a class. And Paul just isn't speaking in this kind of you know, ambiguous theoretical understanding. Oh, here is a potential class of people that has no content. The, the discussion, the other, this is where the contractual theology goes awry and talks about, oh, it's uh, that we have some sort of innate cognitive ability that there's this, this class of strange Gentiles out there that are going to be saved by available light or by some other means. Paul knows, knows no such thing as available light. That's just a non sequitur in his picture of a universal problem and a universal salvation. I would even go there. So the conclusion is that the Gentiles in question in Romans 2.25 to, to, to 29 are Christians to whom Paul is describing what is essential covenant language. That is, they are now the keepers of the covenant. As he says elsewhere, they're the true Jews. And so this evokes the picture, as N.T. Wright points out, that the picture in Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Uh, I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I give to your ancestors, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That he will give people a new heart. They'll be cleansed from idolatry. You know, the interesting thing is that in the New Testament, the Jews, in fact, still have the same problem. And this is what, you know, Stephen actually accuses them of. And Paul says that it is this underlying problem of desire, of covetousness, of lust. And so the picture again in Ezekiel, I will put my spirit within you. You'll be enabled to follow my statute. That's precisely what Paul is working out by chapter 8. We're going to see that people then are able to be righteous. They're able to, in fact, in the language there, that they're keeping the law, the law of Christ. And so this forgiveness of sins that Paul is describing in the gospel, that's a return from exile, maybe most clearly seen, you know, when Paul talks about resurrection. Resurrection is a defeat of the powers of sin and death. It's clear that, that Paul is referencing the, the picture in Ezekiel and other places of a people then who are truly changed up, whose hearts are changed. When does that happen? That happens in Christ, that there is the ingathering of the nations. There is the fulfillment of the huge pictures of a universal salvation. In no way is Paul introducing a parallel mode of salvation that potentially some law-keeping Gentile who doesn't have the law keeps in it. And so this is paired, by the way, the passage preceding this in Ezekiel, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so in 2.26, Paul speaks of uncircumcision being reckoned as circumcision. The other passages where he uses this language, he's always dealing then with, uh, even in, in Romans, dealing with being made right before, you know, this is the case of Abraham in chapter 4. He's made right, he's justified 
prior to the giving of circumcision. That is, that this is a possibility that's opened up in faith. And so Paul's sole concern is to declare that all are sinners, that it's universal. There is this universal predicament. If we understand the details of this universal predicament, that it's a lie oriented to death that takes the law as an end in itself, and this is what Paul is tracing. This becomes clearer and clearer as he goes, and he's already foreshadowing his argument here. Paul's sole concern, then, is this universal salvation. There is the forgiveness of sins, and that's a shorthand way for the return from exile. So for Paul in Jesus Christ, the exile has come to an end, and that is the significance. What is the exile is an exile into death and into the death reigns. Resurrection is a conquering and defeat of a death. And the only way forward is not through the letter. The letter can refer to Scripture. It can refer to words. The Jews are known as the people of the book. Christians shouldn't be the people of the book. We're people of the Lord. And so in the secret of the heart is the true change, not in the circumcision. The problem is that all people in Adam have this the same problem. And the, the human predicament, human problem, it's universal. It's all-inclusive. He's foreshadowing, though, already. He's not just giving us the problem. He's already saying, yes, but there's also a universal apocalyptic break again to the problem. And so the exile has come to an end, that death no longer reigns, that in resurrection faith we have life. That's the argument in chapter 4. And the only way forward is the Spirit, which he's already referenced here in chapter 2. And so not the letter, not in the badge of circumcision, but in the Spirit. We'll come to chapter 3 next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.